Book Six, Part Two of the Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bobnifeld. I shall not be hindered, I said, by any want of will, but if at all by a want of power. My zeal you may see for yourselves, and please to remark in what I am about to say how boldly and unhesitatingly I declare that states should pursue philosophy, not as they do now, but in a different spirit. In what manner? At present, I said, the students of philosophy are quite young, beginning when they are hardly past childhood, they devote only the time saved from money-making and housekeeping to such pursuits, and even those of them who are reputed to have most of the philosophic spirit, when they come within sight of the great difficulty of the subject, I mean dialectic, take themselves off. In after-life, when invited by someone else, they may, perhaps, go and hear a lecture, and after this they make much ado, for philosophy is not considered by them to be their proper business. At last, when they grow old, in most cases they are extinguished more truly than Heraclitus's son, inasmuch as they never light up again. Heraclitus said that the sun was extinguished every evening and relighted every morning but what ought to be their course? Just the opposite. In childhood and youth their study, and what philosophy they learn, should be suited to their tender years. During this period, when they are growing up towards manhood, the chief and special care should be given to their bodies, that they may have them to use in the service of philosophy. As life advances and the intellect begins to mature, let them increase the gymnastics of the soul but when the strength of our citizens fails, and is past civil and military duties, then let them range at will, and engage in no serious labour, as we intend them to live happily here, and to crown this life with a similar happiness in another. "'How truly in earnest you are, Socrates,' he said. "'I am sure of that. And yet most of your hearers, if I am not mistaken, are likely to be still more earnest in their opposition to you, and will never be convinced, Trasimachus least of all. Do not make a quarrel, I said, between Trasimachus and me, who have recently become friends, although, indeed, we were never enemies. For I shall go on striving to the utmost until I either convert him and other men, or do something which may profit them against the day when they live again, and hold the like discourse in another state of existence. You are speaking of a time which is not very near. Rather, I replied, of a time which is as nothing in comparison with eternity. Nevertheless, I do not wonder that the many refuse to believe, for they have never seen that of which we are now speaking realized. They have seen only a conventional imitation of philosophy, consisting of words artificially brought together, not like these of ours having a natural unity but a human being who in word and work is perfectly moulded, as far as he can be, into the proportion and likeness of virtue, such a man ruling in a city which bears the same image, they have never yet seen, neither one nor many of them. Do you think that they ever did? No, indeed. No, my friend, and they have seldom, if ever, heard free and noble sentiments, such as men utter when they are earnestly, and by every means in their power, seeking after truth for the sake of knowledge, while they look coldly on the subtleties of controversy, of which the end is opinion and strife, 
whether they meet with them in the courts of law or in society. They are strangers, he said, to the words of which you speak. And this was what we foresaw, and this was the reason why truth forced us to admit, not without fear and hesitation, that neither cities nor states nor individuals will ever attain perfection until the small class of philosophers whom we termed useless, but not corrupt, are providentially compelled, whether they will or not, to take care of the state, and until a like necessity be laid on the state to obey them, or until kings, or if not kings, the sons of kings or princes, are divinely inspired with a true love of true philosophy. That either or both of these alternatives are impossible, I see no reason to affirm. If they were so, we might indeed be justly ridiculed as dreamers and visionaries. Am I not right? Quite right. If, then, in the countless ages of the past, or at the present hour in some foreign clime which is far away and beyond our ken, the perfected philosopher is, or has been, or hereafter shall be, compelled by a superior power to have the charge of the state, we are ready to assert to the death that this our constitution has been, and is, yea, and will be, whenever the muse of philosophy is queen. There is no impossibility in all this. That there is difficulty, we acknowledge ourselves. My opinion agrees with yours, he said. But do you mean to say that this is not the opinion of the multitude? I should imagine not, he replied. Oh, my friend, I said, do not attack the multitude. They will change their minds, if, not in an aggressive spirit, but gently and with a view of soothing them and removing their dislike of over-education, you show them your philosophers as they really are, and describe as you were just now doing their character and profession, and then mankind will see that he of whom you are speaking is not such as they supposed. If they view him in this new light, they will surely change their notion of him, and answer in another strain. Who can be at enmity with one who loves him, who, that is himself gentle and free from envy, will be jealous of one in whom there is no jealousy. Nay, let me answer for you, that in a few this harsh temper may be found, but not in the majority of mankind. I quite agree with you, he said. And do you not also think, as I do, that the harsh feeling which the many entertain towards philosophy originates in the pretenders, who rush in uninvited, and are always abusing them and finding fault with them, who make persons instead of things the theme of their conversation. And nothing can be more unbecoming in philosophers than this. It is most unbecoming. For he, Adamantus, whose mind is fixed upon true being, has surely no time to look down upon the affairs of earth, or to be filled with malice and envy, contending against men. His eye is ever directed towards things fixed and immutable, which he sees neither injuring nor injured by one another, but all in order, moving according to reason. These he imitates, and to these he will, as far as he can, conform himself. Can a man help imitating that with which he holds reverential converse? Impossible. And the philosopher holding converse with the divine order becomes orderly and divine, as far as the nature of man allows. 
but like everyone else he will suffer from detraction, of course. And if a necessity be laid upon him of fashioning, not only himself, but human nature generally, whether in states or individuals, into that which he beholds elsewhere, will he, think you, be an unskilful artificer of justice, temperance, and every civil virtue? Anything but unskilful. And if the world perceives that what we are saying about him is the truth, will they be angry with philosophy? Will they disbelieve us when we tell them that no state can be happy which is not designed by artists who imitate the heavenly pattern? They will not be angry if they understand. But how will they draw out the plan of which you are speaking? They will begin by taking the state and the manners of men, from which, as from a tablet, they will rub out the picture and leave a clean surface. This is no easy task, but whether easy or not, herein will lie the difference between them and every other legislator. They will have nothing to do either with individual or state, and will inscribe no laws until they have either found or themselves made a clean surface. They will be very right, he said. Having effected this, they will proceed to trace an outline of the Constitution, no doubt. And when they are filling in the work, as I conceive, they will often turn their eyes upwards and downwards. I mean that they will first look at absolute justice and beauty and temperance, and again at the human copy, and will mingle and temper the various elements of life into the image of a man, and this they will conceive according to that other image which, when existing among men, Homer calls the form and likeness of God. Very true, he said. And one feature they will erase, and another they will put in, until they have made the ways of men, as far as possible, agreeable to the ways of God. Indeed, he said, in no way could they make a fairer picture. And now, I said, are we beginning to persuade those whom you described as rushing at us with might and main that the painter of constitutions is such an one as we are praising at whom they were so very indignant because to his hands we committed the state and are they growing a little calmer at what they have just heard much calmer if there is any sense in them why where can they still find any ground for objection will they doubt that the philosopher is a lover of truth and being they would not be so unreasonable. Or that his nature, being such as we have delineated, is akin to the highest good. Neither can they doubt this. But again, will they tell us that such a nature, placed under favorable circumstances, will not be perfectly good and wise if any ever was? Or will they prefer those whom we have rejected? Surely not then will they still be angry at our saying that until philosophers bear rule states and individuals will have no rest from evil nor will this our imaginary state ever be realized i think that they will be less angry shall we assume that they are not only less angry but quite gentle and that they have been converted and for very shame if for no other reason cannot refuse to come to terms by all means he said then let us suppose that the reconciliation has been effected will any one deny the other point that there may be sons of kings or princes who are by nature philosophers surely no man he said and when they come into being will any one say that they must of necessity be destroyed 
that they can hardly be saved is not denied even by us, but that in the whole course of ages no single one of them can escape. Who will venture to affirm this? Who, oh, indeed? But, said I, one is enough. Let there be one man who has a city obedient to his will, and he might bring into existence the ideal polity about which the world is so incredulous. Yes, one is enough. The ruler may impose the laws and institutions which we have been describing, and the citizens may possibly be willing to obey them. Certainly, and that others should approve of what we approve is no miracle or impossibility. I think not. But we have sufficiently shown, in what has preceded, that all this, if only possible, is assuredly for the best. We have. And now we say not only that our laws, if they could be enacted, would be for the best, but also that the enactment of them, though difficult, is not impossible. Very good. And so with pain and toil we have reached the end of one subject. But more remains to be discussed. How and by what studies and pursuits will the saviors of the Constitution be created? and at what ages are they to apply themselves to their several studies? Certainly. I omitted the troublesome business of the possession of women, and the procreation of children, and the appointment of rulers, because I knew that the perfect state would be eyed with jealousy and was difficult of attainment. But that piece of cleverness was not of much service to me, for I had to discuss them all the same. The women and children are now disposed of, but the other question of the rulers must be investigated from the beginning. We were saying, as you will remember, that they were to be lovers of their country, tried by the test of pleasures and pains, and neither in hardships, nor in dangers, nor at any other critical moment were to lose their patriotism. He was to be rejected who failed, but he who always came forth pure, like gold tried in the refiner's fire, was to be made a ruler, and to receive honours and rewards in life and after death. This was the sort of thing which was being said. And then the argument turned aside and veiled her face, not liking to stir the question which has now arisen. I perfectly remember, he said. Yes, my friend, I said, and I then shrank from hazarding the bold word. But now let me dare to say that the perfect guardian must be a philosopher. Yes, he said, let that be affirmed. And do not suppose that there will be many of them, for the gifts which were deemed by us to be essential rarely grow together. They are mostly found in shreds and patches. What do you mean? he said. You are aware, I replied, that quick intelligence, memory, sagacity, cleverness, and similar qualities do not often grow together, and that persons who possess them and are at the same time high-spirited and magnanimous are not so constituted by nature as to live orderly and in a peaceful and settled manner. They are driven any way by their impulses, and all solid principle goes out of them. Very true, he said. On the other hand, those steadfast natures which can better be depended upon, which in a battle are impregnable to fear and immovable, are equally immovable when there is anything to be learned. They are always in a torpid state, and are apt to yawn and go to sleep over any intellectual toil. Quite true. And yet, 
we are saying that both qualities are necessary in those to whom the higher education is to be imparted and who are to share in any office or command certainly he said and will they be a class which is rarely found yes indeed then the aspirant must not only be tested in those labors and dangers and pleasures which we mentioned before but there is another kind of probation which we did not mention he must be exercised also in many kinds of knowledge to see whether the soul will be able to endure the highest of all or will faint under them as in any other studies and exercises yes he said you are quite right in testing him but what do you mean by the highest of all knowledge you may remember i said we divided the soul into three parts and distinguished the several natures of justice temperance courage and wisdom indeed he said if i had forgotten i should not deserve to hear more and do you remember the word of caution which preceded the discussion of them to what do you refer we were saying if i am not mistaken that he who wanted to see them in their perfect beauty must take a longer and more circuitous way at the end of which they would appear but that we could add on a popular exposition of them on a level with the discussion which had preceded and you replied that such an exposition would be enough for you and so the inquiry was continued in what to me seemed to be a very inaccurate manner whether you were satisfied or not it is for you to say yes he said i thought and others thought that you gave us a fair measure of truth but my friend i said a measure of such things which in any degree falls short of the whole truth is not fair measure for nothing imperfect is the measure of anything although persons are too apt to be contented and think that they need search no further not an uncommon case when people are indolent yes i said and there cannot be any worse fault in a guardian of the state and of the laws true the guardian then i said must be required to take the longer circuit and toil at learning as well as at gymnastics or he will never reach the highest knowledge of all which as we were just now saying is his proper calling what he said is there a knowledge still higher than this higher than justice and the other virtues yes i said there is and of the virtues too we must behold not the outline merely as at present nothing short of the most finished picture should satisfy us when little things are elaborated with an infinity of pains in order that they may appear in their full beauty and utmost clearness how ridiculous that we should not think the highest truths worthy of attaining the highest accuracy a right noble thought but do you suppose that we shall refrain from asking you what is this highest knowledge nay i said ask if you will but i am certain that you have heard the answer many times and now you either do not understand me or as i rather think you are disposed to be troublesome for you have often been told that the idea of good is the highest knowledge and that all things become useful and advantageous only by their use of this you can hardly be ignorant that of this i was about to speak concerning which as you have often heard me say we know so little and without which any other knowledge or possession of any kind will profit us nothing do you think that the possession of all other things is of any value if we do not possess the good or the knowledge of all other things if we have no knowledge of beauty and goodness assuredly not 
you are further aware that most people affirm pleasure to be the good but the finer sort of wits say it is knowledge yes and you are aware too that the latter cannot explain what they mean by knowledge and are obliged after all to say knowledge of the good how ridiculous yes that they should begin by reproaching us with our ignorance of the good and then presume our knowledge of it for the good they define to mean knowledge of the good just as if we understood them when they used the term good this is of course ridiculous most true he said and those who make pleasure their good are in equal perplexity for they are compelled to admit that there are bad pleasures as well as good certainly and therefore to acknowledge that bad and good are the same true there can be no doubt about the numerous difficulties in which this question is involved there can be none further do we not see that many are willing to do or to have or to seem to be what is just and honourable without the reality but no one is satisfied with the appearance of good the reality is what they seek in the case of the good appearance is despised by every one very true he said of this then which every soul of man pursues and makes the end of all his actions having a presentiment that there is such an end and yet hesitating because neither knowing the nature nor having the same assurance of this as of other things and therefore losing whatever good there is in other things of a principle such and so great as this ought the best men in our state to whom everything is entrusted to be in the darkness of ignorance certainly not he said i am sure i said that he who does not know how the beautiful and the just are likewise good will be but a sorry guardian of them and i suspect that no one who is ignorant of the good will have a true knowledge of them that he said is a shrewd suspicion of yours and if we only have a guardian who has this knowledge our state will be perfectly ordered of course he replied but i wish that you would tell me whether you conceive this supreme principle of the good to be knowledge or pleasure or different from either Aye i said i knew all along that a fastidious gentleman like you would not be contented with the thoughts of other people about these matters true socrates but i must say that one who like you has passed a lifetime in the study of philosophy should not be always repeating the opinions of others and never telling his own well but has any one a right to say positively what he does not know not he said with the assurance of positive certainty he has no right to do that but he may say what he thinks as a matter of opinion and do you not know i said that all mere opinions are bad and the best of them blind you would not deny that these who have any true notion without intelligence are only like blind men who feel their way along the road very true and do you wish to behold what is blind and crooked and base when others will tell you of brightness and beauty still i must implore you socrates said glaucon not to turn away just as you are reaching the goal if you will only give such an explanation of the good as you have already given of justice and temperance and the other virtues we shall be satisfied yes my friend and i shall be at least equally satisfied but i cannot help fearing that i shall fail and that my indiscreet zeal will bring ridicule upon me 
no sweet sirs let us not at present ask what is the actual nature of the good for to reach what is now in my thoughts would be an effort too great for me but of the child of the good who is likest him i would fain speak if i could be sure that you wish to hear otherwise not oh, by all means he said tell us about the child and you shall remain in our debt for the account of the parent i do indeed wish i replied that i could pay and you receive the account of the parent and not as now of the offspring only take however this latter by way of interest and at the same time have a care that i do not render a false account although i have no intention of deceiving you yes we will take the care that we can proceed yes i said but i must first come to an understanding with you and remind you of what i have mentioned in the course of this discussion and at many other times what the old story that there is a many beautiful and a many good and so of other things which we describe and define to all of them the term many is applied true he said and there is an absolute beauty and an absolute good and of other things to which the word many is applied there is an absolute for they may be brought under a single idea which is called the essence of each very true the many as we say are seen but not known and the ideas are known but not seen exactly and what is the organ with which we see the visible things the sight he said and with the hearing i said we hear and with the other senses perceive the other objects of sense true but have you remarked that sight is by far the most costly and complex piece of workmanship which the artificer of the senses ever contrived no i never have he said then reflect has the ear or voice need of any third or additional nature in order that the one may be able to hear and the other to be heard nothing of the sort no indeed i replied and the same is true of most if not all the other senses you would not say that any of them require such an addition certainly not but you see that without the addition of some other nature there is no seeing or being seen how do you mean sight being as i conceive in the eyes and he who has eyes wanting to see colour being also present in them still unless there be a third nature specially adapted to the purpose the owner of the eyes will see nothing and the colours will be invisible of what nature are you speaking of that which you term light i replied true he said noble then is the bond which links together sight and visibility and great beyond other bonds by no small difference of nature for the light is their bond and the light is no ignoble thing nay the reverse of ignoble and which i said of the gods in heaven would you say was the lord of this element whose is that light which makes the eye to see perfectly and the visible to appear you mean the sun as you and all mankind say may not the relation of sight to this deity be described as follows how neither sight nor the eye in which sight resides is the sun no yet of all the organs of sense the eye is the most like the sun by far the most 
and the power which the eye possesses is a sort of effluence which is dispensed from the sun? Exactly. Then the sun is not sight, but the author of sight, who is recognized by sight. True, he said, and this is he whom I call the child of good, whom the good begat in his own likeness, to be in the visible world, in relation to sight and the things of sight, what the good is in the intellectual world in relation to mind and the things of mind. Will you be a little more explicit? he said. Why, you know, I said, that the eyes, when the person directs them towards objects on which the light of day is no longer shining, but the moon and stars only, see dimly, and are nearly blind, they seem to have no clearness of vision in them. Very true. But when they are directed towards objects on which the sun shines, they see clearly, and there is sight in them? Certainly. And the soul is like the eye, when resting upon that on which the truth and being shine, the soul perceives and understands, and is radiant with intelligence, but when turned towards the twilight of becoming and perishing, then she has opinion only, and goes blinking about, and is first of one opinion and then of another, and seems to have no intelligence. Just so. Now, that which imparts truth to the known, and the power of knowing to the knower, is what I would have you term the idea of good and this you will deem to be the cause of science, and of truth, in so far as the latter becomes the subject of knowledge. Beautiful, too, as are both truth and knowledge, you will be right in esteeming this other nature as more beautiful than either, and as in the previous instance light and sight may be truly said to be like the sun, and yet not to be the sun, so, in this other sphere, science and truth may be termed to be like the good but not the good. The good has a place of honour yet higher. What a wonder of beauty that must be, he said, which is the author of science and truth, and yet surpasses them in beauty. For you surely cannot mean to say that pleasure is the good. God forbid, I replied. But may I ask you to consider the image in another point of view? In what point of view? You would say, would you not, that the sun is not only the author of visibility in all visible things, but of generation and nourishment and growth, though he himself is not generation? Certainly. In like manner, the good may be said to be not only the author of knowledge to all things known, but of their being and essence, and yet the good is not essence, but far exceeds essence in dignity and power. Glaucon said, with a ludicrous earnestness, by the light of heaven, how amazing! Yes, I said, and the exaggeration may be set down to you, for you made me utter my fancies. And pray continue to utter them. At any rate, let us hear if there is anything more to be said about the similitude of the sun. Yes, I said, there is a great deal more. Then omit nothing, however slight. I will do my best, I said but I should think that a great deal will have to be omitted. I hope not, he said. You have to imagine, then, that there are two ruling powers, and that one of them is set over the intellectual world, the other over the visible. I do not say heaven, lest you should fancy I am playing upon the name. May I suppose that you have this distinction of the visible and intelligible fixed in your mind? I have. Now, 
take a line which has been cut into two unequal parts and divide each of them again in the same proportion and suppose the two main divisions to answer one to the visible and the other to the intelligible and then compare the subdivisions in respect of their clearness and want of clearness and you will find that the first section in the sphere of the visible consists of images and by images i mean in the first place shadows and in the second place reflections in water and in solid smooth and polished bodies and the like do you understand yes i understand imagine now the other section of which this is only the resemblance to include the animals which we see and everything that grows or is made very good would you not admit that both the sections of this division have different degrees of truth and that the copy is to the original as the sphere of opinion is to the sphere of knowledge most undoubtedly next proceed to consider the manner in which the sphere of the intellectual is to be divided in what manner thus there are two subdivisions in the lower of which the soul uses the figures given by the former division as images the enquiry can only be hypothetical and instead of going upwards to a principle descends to the other end in the higher of the two the soul passes out of hypotheses and goes up to a principle which is above hypotheses making no use of images as in the former case but proceeding only in and through the ideas themselves i do not quite understand your meaning he said then i will try again you will answer me better when i have made some preliminary remarks you are aware that students of geometry arithmetic and the kindred sciences assume the odd and the even and the figures and three kinds of angles and the like in their several branches of science these are their hypotheses which they and everybody are supposed to know and therefore they do not deign to give any account of them either to themselves or to others but they begin with them and go on until they arrive at last and in a consistent manner at their conclusion yes he said i know and do you not know also that although they make use of the visible forms and reason about them they are thinking not of these but of the ideals which they resemble not of the figures which they draw but of the absolute square and the absolute diameter and so on the forms which they draw or make and which have shadows and reflections in water of their own are converted by them into images but they are really seeking to behold the things themselves which can only be seen with the eye of the mind that is true and of this kind i spoke as the intelligible although in the search after it the soul is compelled to use hypotheses not ascending to a first principle because she is unable to rise above the region of hypothesis but employing the objects of which the shadows below are resemblances in their turn as images they having in relation to the shadows and reflections of them a greater distinctness and therefore a higher value i understand he said that you are speaking of the province of geometry and the sister arts and when i speak of the other divisions of the intelligible you will understand me to speak of that other sort of knowledge which reason herself attains by the power of dialectic using the hypotheses not as first principles but only as hypotheses that is to say as steps and points of departure into a world which is above hypotheses in order that she may soar beyond them to the first principle of the whole and clinging to this and then to that which depends on this 
by successive steps she descends again without the aid of any sensible object from ideas through ideas and in ideas she ends i understand you he replied not perfectly for you seem to be describing a task which is really tremendous but at any rate i understand you to say that knowledge and being which the science of dialectic contemplates are clearer than the notions of the arts as they are termed which proceed from hypotheses only these are also contemplated by the understanding and not by the senses yet because they start from hypotheses and do not ascend to a principle those who contemplate them appear to you not to exercise the higher reason upon them although when a first principle is added to them they are cognizable by the higher reason and the habit which is concerned with geometry in the cognate sciences i suppose that you would term understanding and not reason as being intermediate between opinion and reason you have quite conceived my meaning i said and now corresponding to these four divisions let there be four faculties in the soul reason answering to the highest understanding to the second faith or conviction to the third and perception of shadows to the last and let there be a scale of them and let us suppose that the several faculties have clearness in the same degree that their objects have truth i understand he replied and give my assent and accept your arrangement end of book six